I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited about today's episode of Beauty Bosses podcast. Um, We have Cindy Feinberg, who is CEO of Recovery Coach New York, which is a really innovative organization that deals with all kinds of issues related to substance abuse and mental health, which are such underappreciated topics, I think. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me here today, Dr. Devkin. I'm so excited to talk to you. I am so happy that you're here because I think that mental health is one of these issues that affects so many people, but that so few of us spend time talking about. There's still so much of a stigma associated with substance abuse, and we see it all around us. Well, exactly. To your point, there is so much of a stigma attached to it, and whether it's substance use or mental health, it's shame-based and people don't want to talk about it. You know, people don't want to say, hey, my child, my husband, my partner, my friend, they're home shooting heroin or they have a sex addiction. So they kind of sweep it under the rug and then we get the effects of that. Yeah, All right. I want to rewind and talk about your story, your personal story, because I think it's so amazing how you've devoted yourself to this. When you were growing up in high school, college, did you have any idea that you were going to focus on this arena as your life? Absolutely not. What did did you think you were going to be? I actually thought I was going to be a doctor. Oh. So I'm a a little bit envious of the fact that you're a doctor. Um, I really wanted to go into the medical field, and um, I started out... I applied to college for medical technology. That was where I started. I had a brother who is actually a pretty world-renowned oncologist, and so that was my dream, and um, I ended up not doing that for sure, because I ended up getting married at 18, and squashed the whole college career, and had my first child at 19. So the schooling went out the window. So no, I had no idea that I was gonna go into this field. But somewhere along the line, I developed my own issues with substances. Back in the 80s when Studio 54 was rocking and rolling. Yeah. And that was my playground. Right. What was it like? It was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I was, you know, the party girl at Studio 54, limelight, area. You know, I just watched the documentary on Studio 54 and I was like right there. You know, and I have to say, it was fun till it was not fun. Yeah. And, you know, I started out just drinking a little, drinking a little bit too much. Yeah. And then out of control. Yeah. And There's such a slippery slope. I hear that in so many stories. And I think it's one of those things where, yeah, it's like great, great, great. And then it's not great. You know, people always say to me, how do you know when somebody has crossed that line from, oh, I think they're drinking a little bit too much to wow this is really a problem and I always say the same thing somebody will start to suffer consequences as a as a result of their drinking or drugging or both but they continue to do it anyway so sometimes you'll see they're losing a job they are getting DUIs you know they're starting to like 
not care so much about their appearance. You know, we start to see that a lot with women who are very really health conscious, exercise, take care of their hair, their nails, and then all of a sudden they stop doing all that. And they just continue anyway. And with the men, they lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. With women, their children's lives are at risk because they're home raising their kids and they're continuing yeah. to do what they're doing. And with young kids, their school starts to fail. So that's how you know they've crossed the line, is they're continuing to do whatever that behavior is or substance is. In the face of consequences. In the face of consequences. When did you start to feel like this wasn't going to be a good idea for you? So I was in my 20s. I had now had two children, two beautiful little girls, and um, my first marriage had ended pretty much as a direct result of my substance use, but there were other problems as well. I think my drinking and drugging masked those problems and helped me a little bit through them. And then when my daughters were eight and 11, my mother and best friend confronted me on my drinking and drugging because it was becoming incredibly problematic. And um, I started to know that I had a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I was seeing many therapists lying to them all. I will tell you, most people do lie about their substance use. Even to their therapist? That's yes, interesting. totally. Yeah, they all said to me, have you been inebriated this week? And I'd say, no, absolutely not. And um, did you ever feel like your daughters noticed? Yes, they did. They did. And I will tell you in my work today, I love working with women who have children and are struggling because I can identify and I really feel like I can be so empathetic and really offer them a lot of help as to what life can look like sober. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so you, your mother and your best friend talked to you and kind of you know, told you that they were concerned and then what happened after that? So they both came from a different perspective. My mother came from the perspective of the concerned grandmother. I'm gonna take your children away. But my girlfriend, she was really smart. She showed me what I looked like in the mirror. And I have to say, Dr. Devkin, it was not pretty. I was bloated, I was not attractive. And uh, she said, do it for your vanity sin. And that got me. (laughs) (laughs) That really got me. (laughs) Everyone has a love language, right? There you go. And I did, and the very next day, I went with her to a 12-step program, and that was 1986, March 1986. That's amazing. And I've been sober since then. Congratulations. Thank you. That's really amazing. And then when did you figure out that you wanted to put your experiences toward helping other people? So about five years after that, I became an addiction counselor. And I worked a little bit in the field, but it was difficult. I was raising my daughters alone. It was difficult to financially support them. And I had another thriving career in the home furnishings business. So I continued in that direction. And then about 13 years ago, I really decided I wanted to dedicate myself to the substance world. And coaching was starting to become mainstream, but not so much in New York more in California, you know, they had sort of like, you know, more new age things were emerging yeah, yeah. in LA. I grew up in LA, and yeah, it's so yeah. new age Coaching yeah. and, you know, meditation, yoga. So I went to LA 
and I started training under some really awesome coaches and I became a life coach I became an interventionist and I started to learn some wonderful modalities to help clients and so the name recovery coach New York was really born because I thought I would be a recovery coach helping people come when they came home from treatment because they're sort of like wonderful therapists wonderful psychiatrists here we don't really have inpatient treatment centers to speak of and I wanted to fill that gap help them transition home little did I know how my company was going to explode because of the need here to help people transitioning home or just not ready to go to treatment yeah and I'm a marketer and my background is marketing so I started to tell everybody what I was doing and today I have about 40 coaches that work for me New York LA Florida Chicago and a few other pockets in around the country <clears throat> we do everything from coaching sober companioning meaning they live in with somebody I do a lot of interventions which I can tell you there's a lot of crazy stories doing interventions yeah um, but we help a lot of people that's really we amazing do. yeah and um, I want to hear a little bit more about the specifics of what you do like have there been what was what was a memorable story of a time that you helped someone you know I will tell you you know we range in age from say like adolescence so we work with people who are 15 up to people that are 80 you know and um, I don't know if you're aware of this but there's a big thing going on today with chemsex parties. No, so, I'm not And I aware do a lot of, of sex addiction interventions. What is what is a chemsex party? So chemsex party? is it's a drug um, that's a stimulant so that people take it so that they could stay up and have a lot of sex. It's like crystal meth. And it's become a problem. And there's some wonderful sex addiction therapists who can work with couples around this issue. But, so what'll happen for me is I get to work with a lot of the partners who don't want to participate anymore. And I get to coach them around this and help them, you know, change out of this situation with the partner that wants them to stay in this. But, you know, very often we'll find ourselves, we're coaching, let's just say it's the wife and this comes to the surface. And I then have to though go confront the husband on why he would want the wife to continue in a situation that's not where she wants to be and is probably facilitating her drug use because she's so unhappy. That's so intense. It's intense. When you were starting out, did you ever feel like it was overwhelming to, in a way, take on other people's problems? There are times that it feels overwhelming, which is why I have a clinical supervisor for all my coaches, myself, and that's considered supervision. You need to like run your cases by somebody mm -hmm. who has a clinical degree, a PhD, because it is overwhelming. And there has to be a lot of downtime, which sometimes I feel like I don't have. A, a lot because it is a crisis business mm -hmm. but yes so we do have people that we run our cases by to take the burden off 
Because a lot of times it's hard to decipher, is this person suicidal? Are they not? Are they just saying it because they want attention? So you really need to have somebody who's got that expertise to flesh that out for you. Yeah. Do, do your clients find that it's difficult? I know that you're so big in New York in particular, I guess all over the place, but we're here in New York, so I'm talking about yeah, New York. Yeah, for sure. Um, but in a city like New York, where so much of socializing is over drinks and cocktails and wine tastings and, you know, a sip of this and, you know, exposure to all of these legal and illegal substances, do you find that it's difficult for your clients to just exist socially in New York? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's overwhelming. I just did an interview with ABC Nightline News that's going to air next week, and we talked about the mom wine culture. And what's that like for some moms? They literally go to play dates with their kids, and moms serve wine. I just signed up for a birthday party for my three-year-old at you know this shall remain nameless popular play space on the Upper East Side, and it's one of these things where it's an all-inclusive fire truck party with the bouncy castle and pizza and all of that. And we were selecting things off of the menu, and it's like okay, cake, chocolate or vanilla, ice cream. Etc., and then it's like you pick your adult refreshments, and they're you know, yeah, you, there are people who who definitely are at 10 a.m. for a group of three year olds serving alcohol, definitely. So that was what kind of they intense. brought it's yeah. intense. And so, for the mommies that I work with that are abstaining in recovery, trying to avoid, it's difficult and triggering. and. So in my services, I offer them a companion to go with them because they really feel shamed. You know, and one of the biggest issues with people who are trying to cut back, however that looks, because I don't promote abstinence, I just promote whatever works for you, um, is the whole shaming part of it, how people feel, you know, and um, if bringing a coach with you, saying it's a friend, whatever, however you want to call somebody, um, for example, I send companions with a lot of businessmen when they go on an overnight because they don't feel safe by themselves, whether that's because they're afraid they're going to call a hooker, whether they're afraid that they're going to overindulge at a business dinner, and they just know that their companion's in the corner. That's so interesting. How do you find companions that are palatable for such a range of people? When I first started my company, I used to really seek them out. A good place to find them is the recovery world. Um, now I will tell you, I have people calling me on a daily basis asking me if they could work for me. I have very strict criteria. And unfortunately, sometimes people have no training. So I wrote my own program. I, I developed a school. I. Um, wrote a program on how to become a recovery coach, what was needed, what I felt I've learned over the last 13 years, and it was credentialed through New York State, and people couldn't use this credentialing in pretty much every state in the country. So I would require them to at least take that if they have no training, but I do have a fair amount of MSWs, masters in, people with masters in social work, who work for me. And for someone who has like needs a higher level of care, I will send um, a social worker. And we do a lot of in-home detoxes. So if somebody's coming off of a drug or alcohol, I have a few RNs that I'll send. 
Isn't typically a family member or spouse of somebody with a problem who reaches out to you, or is it typically the person themselves? No, it's usually a loved one. You know, and I will tell you, Dr. Devkin, what you'll, you'd probably be surprised about is how many times the same spouse will call me over the years. Oh, really? And I'll get a text. Hi, it's me again. You know, and sometimes you could think, why is she hanging in there? But you can never tell somebody when to stop loving their partner. Yeah. Do you have advice for young people who are growing up today in this culture of not only party drugs, but also legal marijuana and CBD in so many different states. Because I was talking to someone recently who was telling me that, you know, it's been a challenge for her teenage children because it's not only legal, it's cool. Sure. So the, mar- the whole marijuana thing scares me because marijuana in, in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And I don't want people to think that marijuana is bad. What I find difficult today is the strength of marijuana is not the same as it used to be. Like, I think there's somebody should do a talk, it's not your mama's marijuana. Because we, like, I'm seeing kids have a psychotic break and not come back. And so, avoid it. My advice is avoid it until you're in your 20s or so. Until right, your brain's, when your brain's a little more fully until formed. Until your brain's right. fully formed. And you're making a rational decision that you're not going to become addicted and it's not going to really harm your developmental stages. You know, because it's frightening. Like, we've seen kids really go out there and ruin their lives because they, they just don't really think it's going to happen to them. And, you know, and it does. Right. And, you know, I remember years ago I did an intervention on like a 16 or a 17-year-old. Because, you know, under 18, we can just take them. Their parents can just say, go grab them. And um, this kid got so caught up in a cult-like culture with these 30-something-year-olds that sold him a song and a dance of what his life was going to be like living with them, not his family, that he has, his parents mobilized me and 30 family members, and we got this kid in a room away from this cult. And I usually do a very loving, kind intervention, mm-hmm. but he was not buying it. And at the end of the three and a half hours, we had two big guys come in and say to him, sorry, but you're leaving. And it's really frightening today to watch how some young kids can really trust what people tell them. Oh, it's crazy. It's You're really so vulnerable in those teenage years. You'll just believe so anything. So vulnerable. What drugs are most popular right now that you're seeing? Um, or or is it alcohol? What substances are a lot are of, most? Uh, it's it's most interesting problem. because a lot of the drugs that I can't test for, which frightens me, because sometimes I'll say, "Oh my God, this kid's on a drug. I have to Google it. I don't even know. Like I'm too old. I you know." But a lot of kids are trying ketamine, which okay. you know what that is. Mm-hmm. It's a horse tranquilizer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of kids are doing and an that. Anesthesia medicine. So, yeah, yeah. So that's big right now. Yes, marijuana is big. It's always going to be big. And cocaine's big. It's coming back again. 
You know, it was big in the 80s when I was young. It went away for a little while, but it's coming back again. And are you seeing the abuse of prescription drugs? Because I'm seeing yes. so many news stories about abuse of prescription drugs and even substances that are extremely highly regulated, like fentanyl. So I've seen recently a few of my clients getting carfentanil on the black web, which is really frightening. I mean, that's like... You could die. 300 times stronger than fentanyl. Yeah. And, you know, the feds knock on their door, and that's how they get, that's how they stop. That's crazy. I know. What kinds of addiction do you think are the things that you're seeing most of in your practice? Is it mostly alcohol, drugs? I know you mentioned sex addiction. Do you... Yeah. So here's the thing about the other process addictions, mm -hmm. which would be something like sex, drugs, all of the other addictions, which are very difficult to treat because with substances, you can be abstinent. People have to eat, so an eating disorder is really difficult to treat. Sex addiction is really difficult to treat because abstinence is not a real model. To treat sex addiction. I mean, it may be for a short period of time, but people have sex. So, and, and there's so many different varieties of people who struggle with sex issues, whether it's porn, whether it's acting out, whether it's, I mean, whatever it is. Um, we see a lot with women with shopping. That's so interesting, really. In the era of online shopping, it is a little alarmingly easy to just tap to shop. And very often what will happen, Dr. Devkin, is if I'm working with somebody who's struggling with a substance issue, they put it down, another one pops up. And with men, it's, um, I don't want to you know, make it like it's a set rule, but with men, a lot of times that's sex, and with women, a lot of times it's shopping or exercise. That's so fascinating. Do you believe that some people just have more addictive personalities? That's something that when I was in medical school came up as a theory in, um, in the pharmacology and psychiatry classes where, you know, it, is it possible that some people just have a dif different dopamine receptor pathway and they just, you know, their oxytocin surge or gets triggered more than other people and they just want to cling to things. Well, I do. do. I mean, yeah. it is a disease. I mean, yeah. it, was, it is in the DSM, so it is a disease and I do believe it's hereditary. So, you know, one of the things that I think takes a lot of the stigma and shame away for somebody is when I can do a, a graph for them and show them when it's in their family and take that away from them and say, hey, it's not your fault. You know, this has been generational for you. Yeah. kind of like you could see them relax and like right okay you know I could blame my mom <laughs> it's always it's always our mother <laughs> that's so interesting what are some practical tips you have for people just private citizens listening to this out in the wild of the real world to, like how do you keep your head on straight and how do you try to be a normal person and have fun and have a social life and not fall down one of these darker paths so, you know, one of the things, I do get a lot of people that come to me and say, I don't want to stop. Like, I really want to continue. And it may be problematic, but what do I do before? Like, I think, like, oh, my God, there's a problem. I can't do this anymore. And I can't go out with my friends. And my whole life is socializing. I tell them to try to give it 
30 days without it, without whatever they're doing, whatever, whatever that is for them, whether it's a substance, you know, any kind of outside behavioral issue that they feel is becoming problematic, try it for 30 days, see what happens. And if they're incredibly anxious, try meditating. See if doing something different outside yourself, relaxing, can help you with that. And if not, you may need to seek like a behavioralist, you know, therapist, maybe doing a little bit of harm reduction, like not stopping totally, but working on a plan to limit it first. Like, can you go three days a week with having the drink? I mean, I'm not proposing someone be a social heroin user. I don't think that's possible. But if it's alcohol and they think it's becoming problematic, try cutting back and see what happens. There's all these now server bars that are popping up. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I haven't heard about oh, that. Oh, yeah, there's a few of them in the city that's wonderful. And what, what's it like there? The same. Dancing and, you know, cocktails that taste like cocktails, but there's no alcohol. How fun. Yeah. There's this whole new sober movement so that young people who are becoming sober can go and still have fun and feel like they're not missing out. That's so amazing. Yeah. Well, what are your future plans for um, your business, but also for your social work? In this topic, so I'm planning on developing a nonprofit. I want to be able to offer coaching and interventions to families who can't afford it, and so I'm in the talks and works with a dear friend who was a client who wants to help start it with me because he was so grateful for the work that I did with him and his family, and so that's my next venture. And I feel very strongly about giving back and helping because I don't really think that the issue that we have right now in our country with addiction is going away so fast. You know, um, I, have, I, was, I had hosted a dinner last night for some of the top addiction psychiatrists and clinicians in the city. And the, the thing that always amazes me is you can't get an appointment with any of them because they're so busy. Why is that? Because our problem is just so great. But I will tell you, they all commented on how great my face looked. So I told them to, I told <laughs> oh them to come to you. <laughs> um, that's so nice of you. Thank you so much. You do look beautiful as ever. Um, well, I wanted to close by asking you, I know you started out telling us this very gripping story about your own life mm-hmm. when you were young and having issues and... Um, I'd love to just hear your personal perspective on what it has meant for you and your own personal life to have come from there, been through the whole roller coaster of ups and downs, and now to not only have, you know, become this amazing put together public figure who's doing all this wonderful social good, but also someone who has taken her weaknesses and made them into something and what's it like for you for your daughters for yeah, your for yeah. my grandchildren yeah your grandchildren too yeah. wow it's you know one of the questions on your questionnaire was what's my greatest accomplishment it is my recovery and i really feel that you know for people who have and struggle with substance use it is it's every day's a miracle that you wake up and you don't pick up because it is a constant 
struggle. And I don't feel that on a daily basis, but I mean, there's days, you know, who doesn't want to just like not deal with a problem? Like everybody just wants to like, I don't want to deal with that today. And a drink is like the quickest outlet. You know, it takes it away in a second. So, you know, I did a talk in Israel last year from surviving to thriving and everything in between. And it was to 400 women. And I think it was like such a fascinating talk. And I felt so good because I want the message for all young girls and women to know that anything's possible. I mean, like we talked about in the beginning, I never went to college. I finished high school. And, you know, I was always envious of people who like did all that. But at the end of the day, I can help so many people because I was just determined to be able to keep moving and have a career where that was what I put out there was my passion about recovery. That's so amazing and inspiring. I feel like I'm almost gonna tear up. That's Mm -hmm. such a great story too, because you know, I think a lot of times we've interviewed many traditional entrepreneurs who, you know, start a cool startup and sell a widget and stuff like that, which is also fun and amazing in its own way. But, um, but a lot of times people really focus on having to go to such and such name brand business school and write your business plan and get your first round of funding and so forth. And, um, and I think that some of the most amazing stories are ones like yours, where it's like a person with an idea and a purpose and a focus and you've, I'm so impressed with everything you've made it into, and we can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for having me here. Can you tell everyone where to find you? Sure. So my name is Cindy Feinberg. My website is www.therecoverycoachny.com, and my number is 631-921-4085. And we're going to link all of that. So it was so awesome to chat with you. And it's such an important topic. Thank you again. Thank you.